Father, we thank you that you're a good God and you're a good Father who longs to give good gifts to your children to make us good people who do good works in your name. So God, I pray that you would remind us about the possibilities of goodness in a broken world today. Would you empower us by your Holy Spirit to become the kind of people who, because of your goodness, share in your goodness and do good in your name in the world. And in doing so, God, would you draw all men to yourself where they see your, beauty, your beautiful life, your beautiful works, and praise you and come to know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I can think of no better day of the year. This is accidental. Um, we didn't plan out our sermons in conjunction with Hallmark. But I can think of no better day of the year that really brings together the paradox of what we're talking about today than Mother's Day. And I appreciate so much how Emily, I think, brought this out in her prayer. When we think about a day like Mother's Day, um, I'll never forget being a young pastor in Florida, the church I was at before here. And when we got up to begin the set and talk about uh, Mother's Day and kind of sing and pray, this woman just went running out of the, went running out of the church. And uh, it was nice. We lived across, our, our church was across the street from the beach, so she went out to the beach. But she sat down on the beach, and I would hear later that she wept, just feeling the tension of, of Mother's Day. It's a day of both goodness as we celebrate uh, mothers, and we celebrate the, this idea of motherhood that God has given to it as a gift to the world. Whether you're here and you are a mother, all of us came from mothers, right? And so we, we celebrate the goodness of motherhood, but we also see its brokenness, right? We see its brokenness, and, and we experience all the pain of that. And I think as we talk about today what it means to be um, a people of goodness in a world of brokenness, I just want to remind us of Paul's words in Galatians chapter 5. This is uh, the series we're doing on the fruit of the Spirit. We've been working through the past couple of weeks, and uh, this is one of the harder ones because goodness is so hard to define. It's almost like you can see it easier than you can define it. But here, here's Paul's words in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. We live, obviously, as many of us know, in a broken world, a world that's not the way that it was designed to be. We see uh, brokenness everywhere. We see it in our own lives. We see it in our families as we talk about motherhood and fatherhood and conflict and unresolved conflict and unfulfilled desires and expectations and harm and trauma. We see brokenness in our society, right? We think about all the different institutions from education to politics to our economic system. I mean, there's so much brokenness in the world. I don't have to like detail that for you or itemize that for you. I think we all know and we experience every day the effects of brokenness. This is why so many of us are disillusioned. We feel alienated. We feel angry. We feel sad and depressed because we look around at our lives and we say, is this really the good life that God promised when he created the world very good? There's a, actually a term that captures this, uh, and if you want to go, um, it can be found, a little bit more information can be found on the, at the uh, website, this website called the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. I love that title. Uh, but there's a word that captures this sense of wrongness that we all kind of live in on a daily basis. It's the word paro. Paro means the feeling that no matter what you do, it's always somehow wrong. You ever felt like that? No matter what you try to do, no matter how you try to pursue goodness, you just can't seem to get there. And in an age with digital media, you know, social media, and, and you know, if you read the news, 
Like, you just always get this sense that, like, I can't quite measure up, right? Like, there's some obvious way forward that all the gurus and the experts out there can see, but I can't seem to see it. I can't seem to grasp it. And, and I think living in this moment we're in, in this, you know, increasingly secular age, I think, I think what we're seeing is, a, a, like, an intensification of this, right? Like, this tendency to moralize our preferences, our values, those of our tribe, our people, what we think is right, and the challenge is these moralized values or, or like this advice that comes to us is often conflicting and competing. So if I were to ask you the question, which is really, a, I think, a question being asked by our society a lot right now, particularly in, in our media and our film, what does it mean to live a good life? How would you answer that question? Do we even slow down to try to answer that question? One of my favorite shows of the last uh, couple of years is... Uh, a film that you can find, on, or a show that you can find on Netflix, a series called The Good Place. And in The Good Place, they wrestle. There's, there's uh, four characters. Eleanor, who's kind of the, is not a great person when she was alive, when she was in the movie, uh, in the show. Jason, who was kind of this, you know, dummy criminal, uh, kind of a goofball. Uh, Chidi, who was a, like a really upstanding, like ethical, moral philosopher. And then Tahini, who's kind of this like wealthy, like activist type, philanthropist person. And, and the show is brilliant because it's really just a reflection on what does it mean to live a good life? And it shows like all the confusion through the seasons. You see all the moral confusion about what it means to live a good life. Is it what you do? Is it your motivations? What does it mean to, to go to the good place versus the bad place, right? And it's kind of a, a secular uh, parable seeking to wrestle with what is the essence of the good life. And it's, it's very funny. Uh, but it's also very sad because the answer is we don't really know. When I think about um, days like this, another uh, question that comes to my mind in terms of what it means to live a good life is what does it mean to be a good parent? What does it mean to be a good mother? Have you ever thought about that, moms? Like, what does it mean to be, there's so much pressure to be a good mom. And I bet if I were to ask you, um, like, moms, what do you wanna hear more than anything else on a day like today? Is it, you're such a terrible mom, you've done a terrible job. Is that, is that what you want to hear? No. What you want to hear on a day like this is, good job, mom. You're a great mom. But what does it actually mean? Like, for those of you who have little kids, there's this, there's this desire and longing to be a good mom. And yet there's this anxiety about not really knowing what it means to be a good parent. And in the West, it seems like it's impossible to even attain that standard. There's a great book out um, recently uh, called uh, Impossible Parenting by a woman named Olivia Scobie, and she talks about the challenges of trying to be a mother in the West with all the pressure on a millennial mom. She's a younger mom. And here's what she says about Western parenting. She said, Western parenting culture is now dominated by a parenting philosophy that I call impossible parenting. Impossible parenting is rooted in the core concepts of what she calls intensive mothering, that demand child-centered families, research-based decisions, and continuous responsiveness. But now that is no longer enough, and parents are also expected to obsess over health and risk aversion, hyper-focus their attention on psychological outcomes, and ensure everyone experiences gratitude and joy along the way. And all of it must be demonstrated on social media because in many ways parenting has become a lifestyle brand that aligns with whatever community subculture you want to belong to, such as attachment parents, free-range parents, tiger parents, feminist parents. 
She says there's six core values that kind of underpin this culture of impossible parenting. The first one, and I'll put them up here on the screen, the more you sacrifice, the more you love. She said there's almost like a comparative suffering in motherhood that's like, who's the tiredest? She calls it a race to the bottom. Who's the tiredest? Who sacrifices the most? Who's done the most for their children last week? And you kind of put it out on social media, I'm so exhausted. The second one is invest up front, be rewarded later, invest in classes, invest in training, invest in all these skills, get your kids involved in 20 million activities because later they won't go to counseling or whatever, you know, they won't be on Dr. Phil talking about how bad of a parent you were. Number three, danger is all around us, stay vigilant, right? Like this is the idea of the tiger mom, the helicopter parent, you have to protect your kids, keep them in a bubble because the world is a dangerous place and you have to be vigilant. Four, I love this one, keep it natural, right? Everything has to be organic. Everything has to be natural. And it takes a lot of energy and time to figure out what is natural, what is right. There's all of this pressure. And you get different advice from different Insta uh, influencers on what is actually natural and what is good and what fibers to be including in clothing. I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's so exhausting. Five, she talks about pres- prescribed self-care, which again, she says, self-care is not bad, but there is a prescribed self-care. This is the way you take care of yourself. And she says, it's usually niche and really bougie, right? Like self-care has to look like this. You have to go to this spa. You have to do this thing. And she says, self-care has been weaponized in, in a sense. And then sixth, make every moment magical. Everything has to be awesome. Sounds like a recipe for shame, guilt, fear, in a sense of failure. But I think underneath all of the confusion and brokenness that we experience, I think what we see is this longing for goodness. That's the thing I want to point out. Underneath all of this anxiety and this anxious energy around being good, there is a, 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 an essential kind of irrepressible desire to enter into an experience in our bodies and our families and our society, goodness. And yet, Nobody seems to know the pathway forward. How do we recover goodness? How do we get into goodness? I think this is why you see on the male side, men like Jordan Peterson, so popular, right? He has 12 rules to live a good life. That's very simple. Do these 12 things and you'll live a good life. There's an intense desire in a world of confusion and chaos and competing visions of the good life for goodness. And so the question we want to wrestle with is what does it mean to live a good life? in a world of brokenness? What does it mean to embrace goodness, to see goodness, to taste it, to experience it, and to offer it to the world? Before I talk about what goodness is, let me just remind us, because I know um, some of us didn't grow up around church, or if we did, we had kind of a, uh, a little bit of a distance from the church, and when we hear words like goodness, maybe what pops into your mind is this character on a show, I actually wasn't allowed to watch my parents in here when I was, when I was a kid, but Ned Flanders, Ned Flanders is the quintessential Gen X, like, good neighbor, right? Howdy ho neighbor. And if you watch Simpsons, I was not allowed to watch, so of course I snuck it uh, at my friend's house. But uh, Ned Flanders is this good Christian neighbor, right? He's self-righteous. He carries a sense of kind of superiority, you know, in the the things he does. And, and, And there's kind of this boring, judgmental, hypocritical naivete to his goodness, And that's not at all what we mean when we say goodness as Christians. Goodness, as a matter of fact, like Christians don't have a a corner on goodness. 
There's goodness in the world that can be seen. We believe in common grace. There's goodness that can be seen all over the place. And if we look at the track record of the church, we have often failed to live up to our own standards of goodness. We must acknowledge that. We must name that, right? Like in the pursuit of something, we oftentimes have weaponized or co-opted what we think is good in ways that have harmed a lot of people. We've contributed to the brokenness of the world. And these caricatures are kind of rightly earned in that way. But that's not the only story. That's not the only way to see it. There is a promise of true goodness that's not naive, that's not a superiority that we carry towards other people. This word that Paul uses um, as we think about defining goodness, it's the word agathosine in the Greek. It's an interesting word. It's only used several times in the Bible in this particular way. But the root of it is actually the word agathos. So if you know somebody named Agatha, that, that, that's the word goodness in the Bible. And it has a wide range of meaning in the Bible. One of the things that's interesting about this word is its uses outside the Bible. It, it, when Jesus uses this word, when Paul uses this word, when the writers of the New Testament use this word agathos to talk about goodness, they're interacting with these words, I believe, intentionally within a Greco-Roman context that had a deep history in kind of Greek philosophy and literature, right? One of the questions that dominated thinking prior to Jesus even coming on the scene in Greece, in Athens, particularly with Plato and Socrates, or Plato and his fictional character Socrates and Aristotle, was this question, what is the good life? I mean, that was what philosophy was all about. What is the good life? Philos wisdom, you know, like, what, what does it mean to love wisdom? To be a lover of wisdom is to be a philosopher. My kids uh, attend, have attended for some years uh, a classical school here in Indianapolis. And uh, one of the things you learn very early on through, uh, like, the Magic Treehouse books, as early as, you know, first, second, and third grade, you learn about this kind of Greco-Roman idea of what, what's been called the Platonic triad. What's good what's true, and what's beautiful, right? And Plato said that really the good life is one that loves what's good, this, this abstract ideal of good, not a personal God who's good, but an abstract idea, and that that goodness is, is beautiful. It ought to be compelling. It ought to be attractive. And so when the New Testament authors are interacting with these concepts of goodness, they are, I believe, engaging a culture that knew something about virtue, that knew something about what's good and what's true and what's beautiful, but what they're doing is saying what you have, this vision, it's, it's incomplete. And so they're trying to deepen and really heighten and, and I think transform these concepts of the good and the true and the beautiful and to say, seek what you're seeking, but not where you seek it. Goodness is only found in God and his kingdom. And so when it comes to defining goodness, the word good usually kind of refers to uh, some sort of excellence that is, um, can't be separated really from the object's purpose, right? So if I were to say, what is a good watch? You'd say, well, okay, we have to define what a watch is, then we can define what a good watch is. If I were to say, what's a good lawnmower? You'd say, well, we have to know what a lawnmower is good for. What's a good weed eater? Okay, like, weed eater's great for cutting grass, not so great for trimming beards, right? Like, we have to understand the purpose for which something was created. Then we can talk about what it means to be good. And it's the same thing with human flourishing. We cannot understand goodness apart from understanding 
who God is and what God's purposes are in the world. Goodness is inseparable from the character and the nature of God and God's purposes in creating human beings in the beginning. And so in order to understand goodness, we have to understand who God is, right? Because God is good, the Bible says, and he does good. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 19, when he's asked about goodness and righteousness, he says there's no one good except God alone. Exodus 33, Moses asked to see God's glory. And the the first time that God reveals his character and his nature, he says, this is who I am. He says to Moses, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim the name Yahweh before you. I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and compassionate on whom I will be compassionate. God says, I'm gonna cause my whole being to come in front of you and my being is good. I'm good. The psalmist in 119, 68 says, you are good and you do what is good. Deuteronomy 32, four. The song says, the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are entirely just or righteous. A faithful God without prejudice, he is righteous and he is true. So whatever... Whoever God is, he's good. And whatever goodness is, it has to be rooted in who God is and his purposes in the world. If I were to kind of summarize the two words that I think perfectly capture, or at least summarize what goodness is when we look at the character and the nature of God, I'd say it's two things. And we often don't see these things together, but I think it's two things. Integrity and beauty. Right? Integrity is the idea of integer, wholeness, a whole number, wholeness, righteousness, rightness. God is the same inside and out, right, so to speak. God is the same no matter where he goes. He has integrity. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. It's, it's kind of this idea of consistency and alignment, right? Like whatever God does is always morally right, but then there's another aspect to that. That same word be- uh, goodness in the Bible can be translated beauty. And we miss the fact that beauty, uh, goodness, is also supposed to be beautiful. It's supposed to be something that's compelling, something that's attractive, something that feels good, that's aesthetically beautiful, and that has this attractive quality to it. So God is both integrous and he is also beautiful. And everything he does is full of integrity and full of beauty. That's why if you go back to the very beginning of the origin story of humanity, what's unique about Christianity amongst all the religions of ancient Mesopotamia in Genesis chapter one is that the Bible is the only story that says God is good and he creates the world out of his goodness, not out of violence, not out of chaos, not out of randomness. He's not at war with other gods. And then out of that violence comes the children of humanity. No, it's a good God who on purpose, out of the goodness of his nature, overflows. Think of creation as just canvas. And God, with all of his intrinsic integrity and beauty, says, I'm gonna paint on the world, my goodness. And that's why you see early on in the first chapter of Genesis, a good God creating a good world and creating good people who would experience his goodness and extend his goodness throughout the rest of creation. 
The idea of goodness here, this idea of shalom is really what it is, flourishing, wholeness, righteousness, the world as it's supposed to be, is this idea that out of the chaos, right, God brings order, God brings abundance, God brings harmony, God brings unity to the chaos, beauty, abundance, flourishing. And what does he do seven times in Genesis chapter one? He looks at what he created and he said what? It's good. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And on the seventh time, he says what? It's very good. This is how God designed the world. And it's that beauty that draws us to God, right? It's that idea of beauty that, that we, we long for. We want to get into, C.S. Lewis says, we don't just long to stare at beauty. Like, if you go to Newfields, I love to walk Newfields. Got that as a Mother's Day present to my wife last year, uh, two years ago, and we spend time going as a family to Newfields, and you walk on, you see art, you see the sculptures, you see the beauty of the landscaping, and there's something awe-inspiring about that, right? It, it does, it arrests you, it draws you in, but you don't want to just look at it, it's like you want to like jump into it, you want to experience it. That's what good art does. One of uh, Emily and I's favorite artists is a guy named Mako, Makoto Fujimara. And, uh, and Mako, as he's known by short, um, talks about this quality of goodness and beauty that draws us to God. And, and uh, it's actually a key part of his testimony. He grew up in Japan, came to America as bicultural, comes to know Jesus through his work in art and through the beauty of art. He's drawn to God. And here's what he says about beauty and goodness. The biblical vision for the flourishing of our lives, live fully under God's love, includes the beautiful. Our failure as human beings is not that we chose earth over heaven. It's that we fail to see the divine in the earth, already active, already working, pouring forth grace and spilling glory into our lives. Artists, whether they are professed believers or not, tap into this grace and glory. There is a terrible beauty, I love that. There is a terrible beauty operating throughout creation. If Christ announced his post-resurrection reality into the darkness, even into hell, as the Bible and Christian catechism suggests, then as theologian Abraham Kuyper put it, there is not one inch of earth that Christ does not call mine. That's the power of beauty. That's the power of goodness. That's what God's all about. Where God is, there's goodness, there's beauty, there's wholeness. But the rest of the story we know is that God, although he creates the world good, um, there, that, that goodness is, as one uh, philosopher says, quickly vandalized. God's beautiful canvas is vandalized by sin. Adam and Eve, instead of uh, kind of allowing themselves to be enveloped and to live with the goodness of God, they decide to go and to seek out, under the temptation of demonic influence, a tree that allows them to distinguish between good and evil apart from God. That is the fundamental temptation of all humanity, is to try to find goodness apart from the grace and the mercy and the beauty and the wholeness of God. And there's a fracturing of the goodness in the, of, of goodness in the world, a brokenness of the world. And now Isaiah says, after, the, after Adam and Eve, the world is under the curse of sin, under the curse of a sin that vandalizes and defaces God's beauty and goodness in the world. Sin is just the distortion of goodness into something ugly. It takes a good thing and makes it ugly. It's a parasite, Augustine says. 
That's why Isaiah 5, he says, woe to you who call evil good and good evil. That's what it means to live on this side of the curse. We look at good things that God has created and we call them evil. We look at evil things and we call them good. What's really interesting, though, is that God provides a remedy. What's such good news, right? Good news for us is that God doesn't leave Adam and Eve in his brokenness. He doesn't leave humanity to themselves to try to figure out what's good and what's not good. One of, my, one of my favorite passages studying this week in thinking about the ministry of Jesus Christ is that Jesus comes into the world, and we often think of him as a, a preacher, and certainly he was. We often think of him as, uh, you know, as the Savior, and he certainly was. But Jesus was also, in a sense, you could say a philosopher. Jesus came to show the world what goodness looks like. He is God, the goodness of God, the good life that Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and all of the philosophers looked for. He is that in the flesh. And one of my favorite passages and reflected on this this week was Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, Peter is, is preaching about Jesus and he says, notice how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And what is the ministry of Jesus all about, he says? How he went about doing good, showing us what good looked like, doing good, pointing us back to Genesis chapter 1, to the divine benediction, the good news of God's good and beautiful world. And healing, that's the same word for save, right? So healing and salvation, same word in the Greek. Healing the brokenness, all who are under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. Jesus comes as the second Adam, to do what the first Adam could not do. He, restore, he is restoring the goodness, recreating the world and the goodness of God's new earth in us, in humanity, in his disciples. He's healing the brokenness. He's saying this is Genesis chapter one all over again. Al Walters, a Christian philosopher, says this, it's quite striking that virtually all of the basic words describing salvation in the Bible imply a return to an originally good state or situation. This is seen ultimately in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why we say Good Friday. Romans chapter 12, Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. That is the meaning of the cross. Jesus comes and he overwhelms evil by laying down his life, by laying down in a sense, his goodness, allowing his goodness to be trampled on by the forces of evil are rising from the dead and overcoming evil with good. And that becomes the pattern and the power for how we live out goodness in the world. And so let me just uh, give you a definition of goodness, and then we'll talk about how do we actually cultivate it as we begin to wrap up. Goodness is simply this, that which is aligned with God's heart for restoring people, places, and institutions back to flourishing. Any goodness is that that comes from God, defined by God, and who God is, that is aligned with God's heart for restoring us back to Genesis chapter one, or rather pointing us forward to Revelation chapter 21 that we saw, 22, we saw just a few weeks ago. But it's, it's aligned with God's heart, God's heart to restore people, to restore places, to restore institutions, societies, back to a state of flourishing and goodness and what's good and true and beautiful. So this is our, our calling. This is our vocation as Christians. This is your invitation. This is my invitation to cultivate goodness in our lives, in the places that we inhabit, the people that we know, 
the people that don't like us, that we don't like, the institutions we inhabit, our workplaces, right? That is our calling as Christians, is to show the world the goodness of God. And it's something that only the Holy Spirit can do in us as the life of God comes into us, as his goodness comes into us by the power of the Spirit. We learn what it means to be disciples who love the good. Philosophers, if you will, who love the good. Luke chapter six, Jesus says it like this, a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes. Grapes are not picked from a bramble bush. A good man, a good person, produces good out of the good storeroom of his heart. Goodness comes from the inside out, not the outside in. An evil man produces evil out of the evil storeroom, for his mouth speaks from the overflow of his heart. So let me just put it really simply. What does it look like to cultivate the good? It is learning by the power of the Spirit to be good and to do good. Now, some of you are like, oh, I don't know about that. I feel a little bit nervous. Be good and do good. That sounds, okay, we'll talk about that. Be good and do good. Let's talk about be good. Becoming good from the inside out. Becoming good starts with acknowledging that there is no goodness in us. If you grew up with the Book of Common Prayer, there's a prayer that you would pray every morning and you confess that there's no health in me. There's no life in me apart from God. Paul says it like this in Romans 7. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. My, that part of me that wars against God, that seeks goodness apart from God. The desire to do what is good is with me. I want to do good. But there's no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do. But I practice the evil that I do not want to do. So here's the paradox of being good. Becoming good people starts with confessing that there is no goodness inside of us apart from God. It's looking at our lives and saying, I cannot manufacture goodness. As hard as I try to be good, I end up in all of my good efforts like, you know, a three-year-old child who's trying to clean up, you know, pudding off the table. You're trying to wipe it up and you end up smearing it and making it worse. Like our best efforts to be good, the Bible says, are like filthy rags. We can't perform our way into goodness. Moms, you cannot make enough good choices for your children to be good. You cannot protect them from the brokenness in the world in a way that's not going to hurt them in different ways, no matter how good you are. You're not gonna be a good employee on your own. We need a goodness from outside of ourselves. We need to be rescued. We need to be restored. We need to be rehabilitated and renewed into goodness. And here's the good news of Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that a good God sent his good son to make us good again. We receive his goodness as a gift. By trusting in him, we become good on the inside. The Holy Spirit transforms us. He gives us a good heart. He gives us a good soul. He get, he's in the process of giving us good bodies. That's what resurrection's all about one day. And, and there's this temptation, I think, sometimes with, I'll just speak to Protestants because those are people I know. Like that's most of us in this room maybe. Maybe some of us didn't grow up in that. 
But we tend to so focus, this is hard for us to think about being good and doing good, because we tend to so focus on our sinfulness and our brokenness. We like make a sport out of it, right? Like how miserable, how much like worm theology can we teach? We're so corrupted, we're broken. And it's, it's, it's half true. We are broken. But we're also made new. Why is it we don't focus enough on that? Why don't we focus on the work, the good work that God begins in us and brings to completion in Christ Jesus? We forget the fact that Jesus came to restore not only the potential, but the inevitability that we can become good again. So we need to stop. I think in the church we're almost obsessed with making a virtue out of our brokenness. Let the world do that. We don't need to make virtue out of brokenness. That's happening all around us. We need to reclaim and recover this idea that God has saved us, he's rescued us to make us new people, good people, in the way that God defines goodness, whole people, flourishing people. And then he enables us then. So that's, that's the imitation. Do you know that goodness? Do you know the goodness of God inside of you? Have you like the psalmist says it like this, taste and see that God is good. He doesn't say, remember how broken you are, corrupted? No, it's taste and see God's goodness. The focus is on the goodness of God. Psalm 27, 13, in a world that's broken, the psalmist says, I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Once we understand that, once we experience that, we are now free to do good in the world. We are now liberated from the bondage of, of sin that vandalizes shalom in the world to do good in the world. And there's this tension, right? So I wanna make sure I clear this up. Because I know some of you are going to leave and you're like, Brandon said we're saved by good works. I didn't say that. Matter of fact, I'm saying I didn't say that right now. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2 says like this. It's a tension. For you are saved by grace through faith. Okay? Everybody hear me? You're saved by grace through faith, by trust, by dependence on God, not by good works. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Okay? So everybody hear me? We're not saved by good works. But Protestants often stop there. We're nervous about the rest of that verse. You know what the rest of that verse goes on to say? For you are created in Christ Jesus. You are God's poem. Poem is the word. You are God's artist, like masterpiece. You are created for what? Good works in Christ Jesus. We're not saved by good works, but you better believe we are saved for good works. Amen. Like I was stunned this week going back to the New Testament. The dozens, not just a few, dozens of passages in the New Testament that implore us, do good in the world. Do good works. Paul says over and over and over. And if you want the list, email me. I'm happy to send you like 50 verses on doing good works. But I'll, don't take my word. Take Jesus' word. Jesus says it like this. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men. That word light comes from Isaiah, where he's talking about good works of mercy and justice and, and sharing the good news of God in the world. That's what he's talking about with light. It's beautiful as it goes out into the world so that they may see your good works 
and not just see our good works so that they say, wow, you're really philanthropic. You're a great activist. No. So they see your good works and do what? Give glory to your Father in heaven. Our good works are going to be the way that people glorify God. Our inability to do good works consistently by the power of the Holy Spirit in us is going to lead people to say there is no God. There is no beautiful God. There is no glorious God who is good and does good in the world because all they see is brokenness. So good works, they open up a horizon of glory for the world. And they they lift our sights from the brokenness all around us and they give us a foretaste, not fullness, right? Like not everything, but a taste to say, wow, I didn't even know that goodness was possible. But I see it and I want it. I mean, Blaise Pascal said this, even if you don't believe in Christianity, we should live in such a way that makes good men wish it were true. We have a good and beautiful God. He makes good and beautiful people. He's given us a good and beautiful world that has been defaced, vandalized by sin. Sin in our hearts, sin in our relationships. And why would we not believe then sin in our institutions and our systems and structures? Why is that such a problem for us? If we have sinful people leading sinful institutions, doesn't it make sense that we would have sinful systems and structures? It's not a political statement. It's just Bible. So God says, hey, my good children, blessed by your good father, go out and do good and beautiful works that restore brokenness. Turn it into goodness. I love these words from Cyprian. Black church father, doesn't get enough airtime oftentimes in the church, third century North African bishop, just a beast when it came to writing about the goodness of God and the good life that God's called us to. He says this, beloved brethren, we are philosophers, not in words, but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom, not by our dress, but by truth. We know virtues, get this, by their practice rather than through boasting of them. We do not speak great things, but we live them. We live greatness. We live goodness by the power of the Spirit at work in us. Humbly, yes, but creatively and consistently, we ought to long for that. We ought to, we ought to live for that. And to do anything less is to abandon our calling in the world. To accept brokenness is to abandon our vocation as disciples. Anybody listening? Anybody agree with that? Let me just, I'm just gonna rattle these off because we don't have time. Let me just give you a couple of practical things. What does it look like to do that? I think it means we need to learn to discern goodness in the world. Discern goodness in the world. And again, this goes back to some of our theology we talked about earlier. If we are only focused on brokenness, if we're only focused on calling out sin and what's wrong, we will miss all of the good things that God is doing in the world. And I think one of the reasons why Christians have such a reputation for being, like, when you think of discernment, discerning good, is the first thing that comes into your mind positive or negative, based on what we see in the internet? If you have a discernment ministry, I'm just going to tell you a little secret. If you want to start a discernment ministry, it usually means cataloging and indexing all of the brokenness in the church and then starting a blog and, and then deconstructing all of the bad things that are happening in the world. That's a discernment ministry. 
But isn't there a flip side to discernment? Can't discernment be discerning the good? Like, I, I love Kentucky Derby pie. I want to discern goodness when it comes to coffee and ice cream. And I don't just say, well, I don't like bricks. I prefer graters. I say, no, the good is graters. And that's why I think bricks is inferior. Let's go ahead and put myself out there. I've discerned the goodness of pecan pie and bourbon mixed together into a pie. And that's why I say sugar cream pie is inferior. I'm putting myself out there as a Southerner. (laughs) Hannah Anderson, our visiting teacher, says it like this. For some of us, discernment carries a defensive connotation. We see it as a protection mechanism, a shield against the threats of a dangerous world. But in broader usage, discernment simply means developing a taste for what's good. It's developing an instinct for quality, a refined sensibility, an eye for value, to know the difference between what's good and what's not in order to partake of the good. The goal of discernment, hear this, because I've said this a million times in COVID, I'm gonna say it a million more times in the next year. The goal of discernment is not simply to avoid what's evil in this life. It is to learn what is good so that we might embrace it and enjoy it. It's not always looking for the shadow, whatever's happening behind this system or structure that's evil, that's seeking to manipulate us into this fear-based, fear-mongering that's happened amongst some Christian elites. It's saying, no, where is God, the good God, the beautiful God at work in the world, and how can I see that while not ignoring the bad, not ignoring the evil, but believing that in the end, good overcomes evil? That's why in Romans 12, Paul says, Therefore, brothers, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, what is pleasing, and what is the perfect or whole, that idea of perfect, the wholeness of the will of God. Paul says also in Philippians 4, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is any praise, dwell on these things. Meditate on these things. And then he goes on to say, imitate me as we seek the good together. That's what community's for. It's, it's helping us get our taste buds online with God's. The beautiful community should be a place where we're telling each other, do you see the good? Do you taste the good? Do you see what God's doing here? Like that kind of goodness is an acquired taste in a broken world. It takes time to train our instincts and our senses. Requires a lot of meditation, a lot of practice, a lot of repentance. But we must be a community of good. That holds on, notice those words, just, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent. So here's the question we should be asking ourselves as a community every day. What's good? What's good? What's good that God's doing in my life? Do you recognize the goodness in yourself? And I mean that in a biblical sense. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion of the day of Christ. There is a good work God is doing in you. It's not all bad in there. Can you see the good? The reason we often don't do good in the world is because we have so much contempt inside for ourselves. We can't even see the goodness of God inside of us. And that's why I think Paul draws their attention to that and says, see this good work in you and then work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Can we see goodness in others? One of my favorite examples of goodness in a human being in the Bible is Barnabas. The Bible says Barnabas, get this, Protestants, Barnabas was a good man. That's what Acts chapter 11 says. Good man, full of the Spirit. The only way you're a good man is if you're full of the Spirit. And he went around encouraging and speaking life into other people, seeing the good and saying, I see that good. I see the progress being made there. I love it. Great job. 
then we need more Barnabases in the church. We need encouragers. We spend our lives looking at brokenness, feeling brokenness, and we need people to come along and say, I see the good that God's at work in your life. You know what? At the end of Acts 11, as a result of Barnabas' encouragement, you know what happens? The church grows. And I have to think it's because partially there was a good man calling out good in other people. Discerning the good and restoring the broken. Restoring the broken. I just want to throw these questions up here and just for you to reflect on. You can snap pictures of this. Um, but when it comes to restoring what's broken, so we discern the good and we know what goodness is. Then once we know what goodness is, next slide, we can ask the question, what's wrong? Christians must be a people that lead with what's good first before we say what's wrong. We don't even know what's wrong until we know what's good. And when we see wrong, goodness is not passive. Goodness is not afraid to say that's wrong. Stop it. We should not do that, but it does it with the other fruit pieces of the fruit. Kindness, joy, love, patience, peace. These all go together. So we can say Stop. We can confront what's evil in the world. We should point out the evils around us. We should not be afraid to talk about evil. What is wrong? What is confused? These questions, by the way, come from Gabe Lyons in his book, Good Faith. I love these. What's confused? Clarify and compel. Clear is kind. It is not kind to be unclear about what is true and beautiful and just. Matter of fact, justice only makes sense if we believe in human flourishing in the way that God designs it. Otherwise, justice is thin and arbitrary. So we must say this is what the Bible means. This is what God means by goodness and justice. And we clarify and then we compel. We, we gather people around us. And then finally, what's missing? And this is, again, what we often miss as Christians. We have a legacy of good works. We have an inheritance of good works from the past. The church, yes, it's been broken, but it's also been a place of beauty that has founded schools, hospitals, orphanages, campaign for prison reform, better housing. I mean, all kinds of things. We could talk about charity. We could talk about uh, seeking justice for the homeless. And yes, I realize it's all tinged and it's tainted to a degree. But nonetheless, the aspirations are there. And God has used the church and used his beautiful people in power ways, powerful ways to display his goodness in the world. That's what we should be about as Christians. We serve a beautiful God who is making us, by his spirit, beautiful people, empowering us to enter into a world of brokenness and to find creative ways together to remind each other about the goodness of God and to move out into the world and to do good works, to be a city on a hill, so that as people see our good works, they glorify our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the goodness of this day. We thank you that despite our limited ability to see and experience goodness, you are good, and you do good. And as we think about our lives, we are products of your goodness God, there is no health in us apart from you. And any good thing we have, we know James says, is a gift that comes down from above. So God, help us to be grateful. Help us to, to cling to what's good, to hold on to what's good, to fight for goodness in our imagination when everything seems broken around us. 
to fight for healing when we're surrounded by and choked out by trauma in our lives. God, would you help us to see your goodness? God, would you help us to confront what's evil as we see those traumas, as we see those injustices? Help us to not just accept that as it is, but to seek to clarify, to call it out, and to work for justice in the world. God, ultimately surrendering and trusting our efforts at goodness to you, knowing that we will never experience that in fullness until the resurrection and the new creation comes to us. But God, help us by your spirit to wait for it, to work for it, to long for it, to believe it's not only possible, but it's inevitable because you, as a good God, sent your good son into the world to make good people. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.